Okay, welcome everyone to the second meeting of the School of St. Philip Neri. Uh, we've recently changed the title of this group from the School of Christi, the School of Christ, to the School of St. Philip Neri, but, uh, in part because uh, this will be the 500th year of, uh, to celebrate Philip Neri's birth. So in uh, 2015, in July, uh, we'll be celebrating uh, his 500th anniversary. And so we want to try to spend this year in particular uh, introducing you a little bit to Philip Neary, his character and charism, as well as some of his spiritual practices. And uh, we'll be able to get back to some of the other things that we've been looking at in the previous year. But uh, we felt that this would be one good way to uh, talk a little bit about the extraordinary individual that Philip Neary was, but also the great spiritual teacher and guide that he is as well. If you want to take a look at your uh, pamphlet here, I want to just show you the, the setup for the evening. Uh, Philip had often began his gatherings with the singing of a hymn, and our the theme this evening is, is Eucharistic, in particular preparation for receiving communion, so if we picked some Eucharistic hymns in particular. And then uh, we'll have a brief reading from the life of St. Philip Neri, too. Uh, we're going to start right from the beginning, so it'll give you a sense of, of his background, familiarize uh, you with him a little bit, and then we'll go through a reading from a book called The School of St. Philip Neri, uh, which was written by a secular priest in Naples uh, named Giuseppe Crispini, uh, Crispino, I'm sorry. And this was translated into English by Father Faber of the London Oratory. And it captures beautifully uh, the counsel that Philip Neri gave to the people uh, of his day in terms of the spiritual life just beautifully written, and I hope that uh, over the course of this year it would be uh, something helpful to us in our own spiritual life. It continues to be relevant uh, in our own day, everything that he teaches, and so I, I hope that you find it valuable. And so after looking at uh, his life and then uh, the, the reading from the School of St. Philip Neri, we'll uh, say a prayer written by Baronius, Cardinal Baronius, who was one of the members of uh, Philip's oratory, great church historian, and then we'll close with a final hymn. Okay? So I ask you to stand now and we'll sing together, Let All Mortal Flesh Be Silent. Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Let all mortal flesh keep silence. And with fear and trembling stand, ponder nothing earthly-minded, for with blessing in His hand, Christ our God to earth descended. Our full homage to. Amen. Mm -hmm. 
city of Florence in the third year of Leo X pontificate, 1515, in the month of July, after six o'clock in the afternoon on the eve of St. Mary Magdalene. He was baptized in the church of... Could you speak a little louder? Yes, I can. He was baptized in the church of St. John the Baptist, as is customary in Florence, there being, in fact, no other baptismal font in this city. He received his grandfather's name, Philip, and to this was added Romolo from the great devotion shown in those parts to the saint of that name. His father, Francesco Neri, was a respectable attorney, a great friend to the religious orders, and especially to the Dominicans. His mother, Lucreta Soldi, was, a no was of a noble family, which in the time of the Republic had long held high offices in the state. Francesco Neri had four children, two girls, Caterina and Elisabetta, and two boys, Antonio, who died young, and Philip, the youngest born, but chief in merit in the sight of God. He was naturally of a quick mind, a pleasing disposition, well-made and of attractive manners, which latter, is, uh, latter gift is generally found in those who are ordained to gain souls to the Lord. His parents brought him up in the best possible way. He was taught grammar and attained a proficiency in it a good deal beyond that of his schoolfellows and profited not a little by the study of rhetoric. His master in these sciences was named Clemente, a man of note in his day. Even among Philip's childish characteristics were some things which might be looked upon as prophetic of his future sanctity. Such were his marked respects for his elders, his singular modesty, and a more than ordinary interest in religious matters. He was so obedient to his father that he never caused him the least uneasiness, except when he once gave his elder sister, Katrina, an unthinkable push because she teased and interrupted him 
while he was reading the Psalms with his other sister, Elizabeth. <laughs> so. For this fault, if fault it really can be called, he was corrected by his father, and when he reflected upon it, he repented even to tears. His attention to his mother's commands was equally exemplary. If she told him to stay in a particular place, nothing would induce him to move without her leave. After her death, his father married again, and Philip's dutifulness to his stepmother was such that she positively uh, reverenced him and loved him as tenderly as if he had been her own child, so that when he left Florence, she wept bitterly and on her deathbed appeared to have him always before her, kept naming his name, and declared that, every, uh, that the very remembrance, remembrance of him was of a refreshment to her. It was not only to his parents that Philip was respectful, but to all who were older than himself. With his equals and his inferiors, he was lighthearted and so peaceable these seem not to know how to be angry. Whenever anything sad or unbecoming was told of him, he always tried to find out some excuse for it or put a good interpretation on it and tried to persuade others to do the same. Indeed, he was never heard to speak evil of anyone. His conduct with all ranks and ages was such as made him a universal favorite and from the kindliness of his temper and the purity of his ways, his comrades nicknamed him Pippo Bueno. Nor was it only in the sight of men that he found favor because of the goodness of his, of his disposition. But he seemed to be, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he seemed to be under a special guardianship of providence. One day, when he was about eight or nine years old, he saw an ass standing in the courtyard and with a boy's thoughtlessness jumped upon its back. By some accident, he and the beast both fell down a flight of steps into a cellar. He was crushed beneath the ass, and no part of his body was visible except his arm. A woman who had witnessed the accident ran to him and drew him from under the animal, not, as she supposed, killed or maimed, but safe and sound without the least vestige of the fall. He often related this story himself as a mark of God's goodness to him, and deplored his own ingratitude for his uh, preservation, though in truth he was continually returned, uh, returning thanks for it. <clears throat> to his other good qualities, Philip joined devotion and spiritual mindedness. Uh, there was something masculine about his boyish devotion, which is difficult to explain. He was not addicted to those exhibitions of childish piety, which are uh, laudable enough in themselves, such as dressing little altars and the like. He was fond of really praying and reciting uh, psalms, and above all, of hearing the word of God. He never spoke lightly, as all boys will do, of becoming a priest or a monk. He concealed this wish of his heart, and from childhood upwards, he eschewed or, uh, Ostination, as if it was uh, his deadly enemy. This maturity of spirit united with his childlike innocence rendered him so dear to God that he appeared to have granted him whatever he prayed for. Even when he had lost everything, he had recourse to prayer in order to find it. 
excuse me, even when he had lost anything, he had recourse to prayer in order to find it. Once returning from Zecca to the Pitti, uh, Pitti Palace, near which he was born and dwelt, he lost a gold necklace. But no sooner had he prayed than he had found it. And another time he recovered by the same means some things which he had dropped from under his arm a great way off. Thank you. It is interesting after being here at the oratory and going through these readings over and over again and, and uh, also reading about uh, Philip Neary as an adult to see that some of these dispositions as a child did follow him into his adulthood. You know, that gentle disposition with people and we always laugh at that story too at dinner whenever he gives his sister a little push <laughs> because she interrupted him while reciting the Psalms. <laughs> Somebody should have told me that before all the times I pushed my sister all over the place for years. <laughs> but, uh, and the prayerfulness, but not, you know, not falling into an affectation, even as a child, you know, deep prayerfulness, but not any kind of ostentation in it. And, uh, that he kept certain things hidden within him, those things that were of greater intimacy between himself and God, especially the, the thought of entering the priesthood, that this wasn't something that he put forward before the eyes of others, but allowed to be formed and shaped within his heart over time, and formed and shaped in particular by that, that great prayerfulness. Last time I think we talked about how surprising it is Philip coming from Florence and even having a kind of reverence for the fiery preacher of Savonarola that uh, he could then in his ministry have such a gentleness and delicacy and be very attentive to people's personality, not a harshness at all, but the opposite, you know, a profound humility and patience with, with others as well as, as good humor that he, he wasn't one who was given over to anger or a harsh, ex, harsh exterior, although he could be that way if he had to. <laughs> so why don't we take a, a little look here at Philip's spirituality. And last time, if you remember, we considered uh, the practice of confession in particular, and Philip was very much ahead of his time that uh, he promoted a frequent confession as a way of overcoming one's vices as well as growing in a deep intimacy with God and in particular in preparation for the, the reception of, of Holy Communion. And so uh, before encouraging people to come to the altar to receive our Lord, he would first encourage them to be reconciled and also to make use of the grace of the sacrament to overcome some of their more serious sins. And so last time, if you remember, often Philip would have people going to confession weekly, sometimes three times a week, and a few individuals even daily if there was such a need in order that they might know the, the strength and the grace of the sacrament. That he was very very much in, uh, in the uh, form of like a John Vianney or Padre Pio in more modern times in that regard, Con true confessor one who would spend lengthy hours, sometimes hearing 50 confessions before breakfast. Uh, so, you know, he took the responsibility as a, as a priest to, to serve people through the confessional very, very seriously. Yes? Father, those confessions, were they in-depth um, 
confessions lasting a long time, or were they just in and out as you know we often? I mean, it's it's hard to say. I, I think when we read through the life of Saint Philip Neri and some of the readings that from the school of Saint Philip, you get a sense that it varied from person to person, and that at that time what we would consider a spiritual direction, a great deal more of that would take place within the confessional, the specific counsel about things that people would be struggling with uh, would be given at that point. So uh, depending on the person's need then, uh, a lengthier confession might take place. And so that, that's what I sort of gather from his life. And you know, that's from my experience as a priest that continues to be true as well. At times there's need for more counsel or just more reflection on what the individual is struggling with uh, and at other times not so much, especially if there is a continuity there. And this was one of the beautiful things, if you remember from last time, that Philip would have people that would be his penitent for 30 or 40 years, which then gave him the capacity to know them very well and offer astute counsel without having to labor very much. Uh, uh, at that point within the confessional, that he knew them so well, he knew their hearts so well, that at times he could even see ahead of time what they were struggling with. Any other thoughts or comments before we move on? And so in connection with this, uh, with what we talked about last time, Philip is confessor, but also the frequency of confession. Uh, Philip, again, also uh, ahead of his time, began to promote frequent communion. And at that time in history, people rarely went uh, to communion, uh, either not feeling themselves worthy or not just availing themselves of the sacrament of confession either. And uh, so there were some in Philip's day that he would uh, encourage to go to communion frequently, as, one, as often as once a month or you know, once a week. Some. Three, again, sometimes people three times a week, and even in rare cases, uh, a person would go every every single day. And it was Philip's own practice to go and receive communion regularly, even when he was ill. Uh, such was his love for it. But he did have a very strong sense that it wasn't something to be entered into lightly, that we would do everything that we can to prepare ourselves to receive well and worthily. And at this time, uh, people so trusted him that there was a kind of obedience there that began to develop with their, with Philip as confessor that he would give them permission to go to confession when they he thought they were prepared and would give them special penances to prepare them uh, to receive communion and then other devotions to engage in after receiving communion so they might benefit all the more from having received the grace of the sacrament. So he was very thoughtful in that way. I think in our own day, we, if we see the importance of receiving Holy Communion, we, I think we've lost the sense of preparing ourselves and seeking to prepare ourselves, especially for special feast days within the life of the church, giving you know, special preparation during those times of fasting, other spiritual disciplines, spiritual reading, or uh, as I mentioned, you know, engaging in greater prayer after having received communion in order that we might benefit most fully from it. And so this, I think it's very timely to go back to look at what Philip taught because I think it's just as needed in our day as it was in his perhaps even more so, both what we talked about last time in regards to frequent confession, but also 
in regards to uh, frequent reception of Holy Communion, but more importantly, preparation for that. There's a kind of herd mentality, which I think you probably have all seen. Everybody goes up to Holy Communion, and often there's more of a sense of embarrassment about not receiving communion, no matter what state of your, what the state of your soul might be, that if everybody else is going up, it's a kind of humiliation not to go, even if your, your conscience is telling you you need to prepare yourself better for this, that there's often a hesitancy to refrain. Whereas, uh, you know, with the Council of Philip Neri, I think there's a clear sense of not, not being scrupulous about it, but, you know, being able to see the real weight of the gift that, uh, weight and value of the gift that we've been given in Holy Communion, and not to hold that grace cheap, to want to, to receive it well. And so it's not to make people fearful of receiving the great gift, but rather respectful and understanding of what it is that they're, they're doing. Any comments or observations before we take a look at the text? Do yeah. they still have an obligation to go to Mass weekly? They just didn't receive? Right, they, would, they wouldn't receive, but they would go to attend Mass or assisted Mass, right? It would depend on the person and what their, their station in life allowed them to do. Okay. okay, so we're going to take a look here at the text from the school of St. Philip Neri. Uh, the first page is just my little commentary, so we'll breathe through that, quick, breathe through that quickly. But uh, I'd encourage you, as we're going through it, don't hesitate to circle things that sort of stand out for you. Uh, again, I want to treat this as kind of a group lexio, if we could, uh, group lexio divina, uh, sort of a deeper reading and reflection upon the text so that we can get the most out of it. So don't hesitate to, uh, as we pause, to bring up questions or comments that you might have. The following lessons, of which today is the second, are chiefly addressed to those Christians who, having well studied the life and virtues of the glorious father, St. Philip Neri, are eager to feel strong devotion to him and to adopt him as their advocate and an intercessor with God in all their spiritual and temporal necessities. It is my hope to explore these lessons in depth in the years to come with the secular oratorians of Pittsburgh in order that we might all come to know St. Philip more personally and to see the beauty of his spirituality and his love for God. St. Philip, like all the great pre-saints, was so devoted to confession as described in the first lesson precisely because of his love for the Holy Eucharist. He wanted everyone to love Christ as he deserves to be loved and to receive him worthily and fruitfully. Everything he did from preaching, catechesis, and his work with youth to confession and spiritual direction had one end, to lead people to union with Christ in the Holy Eucharist. Furthermore, St. Philip knew and taught that charity in all its manifestations flows directly from the Eucharist and leads the Christian back to a more perfect offering of the sacrifice. In other words, for Philip, the Eucharist, in a sense, was perpetuated in time and manifested its fruitfulness whenever his penitents visited the sick or helped the poor. St. Philip teaches us that the spiritual life is one, and that the Eucharist is the integrating center of everything that a person does. In a time when the Eucharist is re received indiscriminately 
and often without preparation or with a response of gratitude, an increased, an increased spiritual fervor, St. Philip remains a wonderful guide. And so there was this sense that, again, the, the, the love that we receive, the grace that we receive in the Holy Eucharist was something to be enacted within our lives, that that love was to be seen in others, uh, seen by others, manifested in, in particular in our works of charity, our attentiveness to those who are struggling. And in Philip's day, uh, as we mentioned last time, that would have been the hospitals in particular in Rome, which would have been more places where people were going to die. They weren't like our hospitals today. They were often, you know, very sad places and where people were basically dropped off and left to die. And so Philip would go there with his penitents to care for their most basic needs, not just to visit with them, but to change their bed linens and to wash them and, and to feed them. And this was something that he continued to foster throughout the course of his life, both in practice and how he guided his penitents in their spiritual life. Okay? Yes? Uh, what species would they use back then? Uh, I think at that point they were just receiving, maybe F Father Ken might know this a little bit better than I. I think it was simply under one species that they weren't distributing from the cup at that oh, point. That, yeah. Or, yeah, like yeah. Day, but probably just particles. Of, or, or, right. or right. You mean for the sick? Mm -hmm. Is that what you mean? No, I mean just in general. Oh, the post likely. Yeah. Day. They were probably coarser um, than what we have uh, with more, more problems with particles, but uh, very similar. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's take a look at the text here. We cannot adequately speak of the wonderful effects of which Holy Communion produces and those who frequently and worthily communicate. They may be tasted but never expressed. Let us taste and see how sweet is the bread of angels. It will stimulate us to know that through the frequent participation of this most divine sacrament, many penitents of our Holy Father became men of holy life and highest perfection. Our Holy Father himself refers to this in his letter addressed to Madonna Fiore. I desire that you may flourish, that is, that is, that the flower, a play on her name, may produce good fruit, the fruit of humility, the fruit of patience, the fruit of all virtues, and that you should be the abode and receptacle of all virtues, as frequent communicants are wont to be. The Holy Master, therefore, wished that not only the priests, but also the lay brothers should frequently receive this most holy sacrament, following his own practice as a layman, which was to communicate every morning. On becoming a priest, he offered Mass daily, even when he was ill, and he communicated every morning. And so, he saw this practice of frequent communion uh, as being the means of, of growing in greater and greater virtue, that those who have a desire for holiness, those who desire to imitate Christ, to embrace the fullness of the gospel, are also going to have a great desire to receive Holy Communion fre frequently. If we know and believe that this is the great, great source of grace, that this is how we are configured to Christ and given the strength to imitate him in our lives, then there is naturally going to be this desire within us to receive him and to do everything that we can, again, to receive him well. 
that grace will build upon grace for us. We are transformed from glory to glory, from grace to grace. And so the, the, the more we grow in virtue, the greater our desire will be to receive Holy Communion, and the more we receive Holy Communion, the more we will grow in, in strength in the life of virtue. So it was extraordinary that even as a young man, Philip was already fostering this in his own life. We've mentioned before what a great prayer he was, how deeply he was immersed from uh, his youth, you know, when most teenage boys were off uh, doing other things or at that age trying to develop a career. You know, his clear focus was on uh, following the guidance of the Holy Spirit and especially allowing himself to be drawn into deeper and deeper communion with God, in particular through his prayer life. And so spending all nights in prayer, uh, whether it was at Gaeta or later in Rome where he would spend entire nights in the catacombs there immersed, immersed in prayer. And his life was very much focused upon the pursuit of virtue, which he saw as the only real good. And it's interesting, we've been reading St. John Cassian's conferences here at the Oratory. And part of the reason that we've been doing this is not only the fact that it's an extraordinary work, uh, but it was something that Philip Neary read in his day and taught his people. And this is one of the things that Cassian uh, addresses in the, the fifth conference uh, uh, of the work in, in particular, that, uh, that that virtue is real, or it's the sixth conference, I'm sorry, that virtue is the only real good and the only real evil is sin or what would pull us away from God. And I think Philip Neary had a very clear sense of that in his life, that this is what he wanted to pursue most of all. He had very little interest in pursuing the professional career. Not that he saw that there was anything wrong with that, but there was a thirst in him from a very early age to pursue virtue, as we already heard uh, from his earliest years that that was true. But as he aged, it became stronger and stronger. And to the point of excluding, again, other things that people would be concerned about, Philip led a life basically of a vagrant in Rome. He lived on a few pennies a day, ate, you know, a hard-boiled egg or a few olives, a piece of bread, uh, you know, had a little a simple room where, and then he supported himself through tutoring uh, some young boys for a family. But other, otherwise, he spent most, uh, uh, most of his time in, in prayer and pursuing the life of holiness and of drawing other people to Christ as well, all with this kind of gentle spirit. But in these early years as a layman, it was his regular practice to, to receive communion because he knew that this was the privileged way to enter into an intimate relationship with Christ. Anything in the first paragraph catch your attention? Pretty straightforward at, at this point, I think. But. Okay. The same rule respecting time cannot be given to all as it depends on the pleasure of the confessor. Some penitents of the Holy Father communicated every eight days, many on every festival, others, others three times a week, and some, though few, every day. 
When anyone is about to communicate, let him ask permission of his confessor and tell him some days before. St. Philip wished that penitents should do this three or four days before, uh, before communion and also said that no one should communicate without the permission of his confessor, since frequently to communicate out of our own heads, I'm sorry, to communicate out of our own heads might occasion great temptations which could not always be resisted. So this might strike our, our modern sensibilities as a little odd, the idea of asking permission to receive Holy Communion from one's confessor because we don't often have that kind of relationship with a particular confessor. That uh, Philip's relationship that he developed with people over the years allowed this to exist. Again, a kind of knowledge of the other where he could guide them and direct them in the way that he felt would be most fruitful for them. But one of the interesting things that is brought up in, in this paragraph is that we would communicate out of our own heads it's sort of an odd phrase, but in accord with our own reason or our rational faculties, in accord with our own will or our own desire perhaps, but I think in accord with our own reason, our own judgment, that we would be judging for ourselves our preparedness to receive Holy Communion. And in that, Philip always saw a particular kind of danger that we are most capable of human beings in our sin of a kind of self-delusion. And the simple desire alone to receive Holy Communion might not be enough. We might have the desire, but our, we might be living in a state of grave sin or perhaps haven't uh, developed the, the thirst for communion that we should. One of the things that Philip wanted was that people would come to the altar with a holy longing that they would truly desire what they were receiving, that they wouldn't come up in a perfunctory way and simply take the host, you know, and objectify it, you know, as if it, they were receiving, you know, something equal to other great things within the world. That there was a preciousness about this gift that was not to be taken lightly. And so, you know, this might give us uh, reason to pause, you know, knowing that it's very hard in our day. Uh, you know, I wouldn't put this out here and say, okay, you need to be asking your confessor every time before you go to communion. I think that might be a goal, certainly, and to develop a kind of stability within your spiritual life that you seek out and find a good confessor that you can stay with over a long period of time where there's that level of trust where you could commit yourself and believe that the counsel that is being given is for your benefit that is going to be something that does foster that thirst for communion or is preparing you more sufficiently to receive it and to receive it well. And with priests being moved around as often as they are and with confession not being offered very regularly, I think this is very hard in our own, in our own day. There almost has to be a renewal in the, uh, in the priesthood, and this would be a good reason to pray for vocations and to pray for priests, that they would embrace the fundamental aspect of their calling, which is to administer the sacraments and to do that well. 
so that not only God that w would raise up vocations, but the, the priests that have already been called will in enter into that with the same kind of fullness that Philip Neri did, so that people then could be become more attentive, that they could refine and, and sensitize their consciences in such a way that they would receive more worthily. This is an enormous responsibility uh, in the life of a priest. And so often, I think, either because of the pressure that they're under to be administ administrators, you know, have so many parishes to care for, or that, you know, out of a sense of negligence, it's, it's gone down on the level of importance that other things carry greater weight than sitting in the confessional. And it's not an easy thing to, as, for a priest to go in the confessional and wait for people and allow that practice of frequent confession to grow and develop over time. There's a kind of discipline of doing that and a willingness to stay there even if nobody comes whatsoever. And you have to be willing to communicate this is something of immense value and importance. And if you're saying that to people that it's of immense value and importance that you should go frequently, then you have to make it available frequently. You can't offer it for 20 minutes once a week in a parish filled with 2,000 people. I saw your hand jump up there. Did you have some nutty thing to say? No, I'm just nodding because, yeah. Because, yeah. Confession is not as available as it should be. Right. I think so. And, you know, I don't I don't think we want to sit in judgment, I think, of any particular person or any priest. I think we can, though, sit in judgment of the situation in which the church finds itself, that there's been a de-emphasis on the importance of the, of the sacraments and receiving them frequently and well. And so part of what we should be praying for for ourselves is that God would renew the, the desire for it in our own lives and that we would begin that regular practice and that in our own spiritual lives again that we would seek out a confessor that we could trust that we feel that we could work with over the course of years now necessity might mean that we move somewhere else and so we have to start that process again but you know in terms of things that are important in our lives i would say this is in the top couple so, yes um the idea of the idea of asking a confessor for permission, it, it is very counter our modern sensibilities. Right. And I mean, it's hard to, to like the idea, but I, I do remember having conversations with friends about sort of di discerning spirits or wondering, am I prepared to receive communion? Like there are those who might be scrupulous, right. you know, over scrupulous. And, you know, it, it could be a, temp you know, a, a bad thing, like the, the you know, Satan right. keeping you away from the Eucharist. Right. But, Especially in when it comes to scruples, it, it's something that it's hard to figure out on your own. Right. Yeah. That's why I wouldn't put it out as a model. I'm not saying, you know, go and do this because it's hard to entrust yourself to those who aren't living it themselves. You know, that Philip would have been doing this in his own case, you know, in, in terms of receiving Holy Communion. And, and you would have to be able to trust the individual again well enough that they know the state of your soul your spiritual life that w what they would be asking you to do even if it is to refrain 
from receiving Holy Communion that they it's because you trust in their holiness and that it's an act of obedience for you and in that obedience you know that there's always a value to that and I think our sense of things like obedience now or especially obedience to a, a confessor or a spiritual director is again something that's foreign to modern sensibilities you know for simply because there aren't many confessors or spiritual directors you know, that perhaps are knowledgeable in that regard. Yes? Um, I just have a question about the refraining uh, from going to communion. Is that a valid spiritual exercise to increase longing? I mean, is that... Yeah. To thirst for Christ, yes. to hunger for Him? Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I would put it in the same frame as fasting. You know, that it creates a hunger within us, a, a bodily hunger that we experience, a desire. And I think the fasting from receiving Holy Communion would create that on a spiritual level for us. That, you know, that we desire that intimacy with the Beloved. And, you know, perhaps uh, a, a confessor might discern within us, you know, a, a lack of desire in that regard. And wouldn't just indiscriminately tell a person, well, just don't receive. I think along with that would probably go, you know, uh, spiritual counsels that would help foster that desire and longing at the same time. And so this is why I'm not putting it out there as, okay, jump into this practice, because that would be an indiscriminate thing to do. But I think it's important for us to be aware of it, that there were these, there are these sensibilities that make sense in the spiritual life of wanting to receive well and to prepare the mind and the heart and to receive unworthily. I mean, Paul says, you know, if you receive without discerning the body, you eat and drink to your own condemnation. And so it's, it's not something to be taken lightly. When we re realize that the grace of the sacrament flows to us from the cross, that we are at the foot of Calvary, when we are at the altar, that we are participating in that sacrifice, you know, to take it lightly and not to approach it with a sense of deep desire you know, should be foreign to us. It should be create a, a sense of horror within us, not in a sense of being scrupulous, but in the sense that we appreciate the mystery that we've been drawn into through Christ. And that's been completely lost. I don't think it would be helpful for us just to tell people, you know, get for a priest to stand up in a pulpit and say, you know, you should all you shouldn't all be coming up and just sit sit right back down. You know, <laughs> you know that's not it's not going to form the minds and the hearts of people either. I think there has to be a long process that takes place of reintroducing people into the, the mystery of the Eucharist, its meaning how one prepares oneself, the sensibilities that we are seeking to foster. And that's why Philip began, I think, with confession, mm -hmm. that he spent all that time within the confessional precisely to sensitize people's hearts to where they were spiritually in relationship to God and to create that fire within them for him. Because my first reaction to that when, when I heard it, I thought, well, surely that would only be to refrain to increase longing because I would think that, I mean, although, it, you know, in the masses we frequently see people coming to communion 
irreverently or haphazardly to not come at all, they would just forget about it. You know what I mean? Oh, well. And right. That's, uh, I think there has to be a kind of catechesis that takes place. Uh, this is the kind of new evangelization. When I think new evangelization, this is what I think about. Not new, but going back to Philip Neary. <laughs> going back 600 years or 500 years. But in order that we might re revive these sensibilities and in, in a deep fashion. And it's not going to happen overnight. It's taken generations to foster a kind of negligence or lack of understanding of the Holy Eucharist or lack of appreciation and it's probably going to take twice as long to get back to the the point mm -hmm. of a deeper appreciation precisely because the priesthood has been so undermined as well as faith and belief in the in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and so there's great conversion of life that has to take place and in particular in the life of priests. Okay. Jim, I saw your hand jumping up and down back there. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah, it's opening up a whole... Like, it's all right. Many, many Open things. that can of worms. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean, it sounds as if really, at the heart of it then, what's happening in most parishes around the world on a Sunday is spiritually, in many ways, detrimental to the people who are there, because people are going up uh, after many of them, many of whom, in reality, the vast majority of whom, you know, haven't darkened the door of the confessional for a long, long time. Um, you know, who are immersed in the secular. You know, you know. So I don't know what to make of that, except that obviously, you know, God's mercy. But, but, um, you know, you're not hearing anything about any of this. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, on the other hand, you hear from the very highest levels of the church, you know, that, that the Eucharist is not a reward for good deeds. Well, to you be know? honest with you, I think it's because Satan doesn't want it to be heard. Yeah, it's an And I think it's undermined. It's not going to be the thing that is emphasized. And whenever there is a movement to emphasize it, it's going to be undermined. I mean, the priesthood has already been stripped of its spiritual and moral authority because of all that's happened and the poor formation that's taken place o over the years. But, you know, back in 2007, this document, I've mentioned this before, a document came out from the Congregation for the Clergy, Cardinal Humes, Humes, and it was called, you know, Adoration, Reparation, and Spiritual Motherhood for Priest. And he wrote uh, every bishop in the world, encouraging them to establish places of Eucharistic adoration, shrines of adoration, places of perpetual adoration, and also to foster a spirituality of reparation for sins, which would include, uh, uh, which would include, uh, what's it called when you receive? Uh, sacrilegious. sacrilegious communion, right, thank you. Uh, sacrilegious communions, as well as sins of priests, and to foster this vocation of spiritual maternity that throughout the history of the church, going back all the way to Mary, there's been this uh, fostering uh, of prayer and support of the priesthood, given that it is a fundamental element in the life of the church, and so that there constantly needs to be this place of 
prayer and penance and reparation that is constantly working to strengthen the priesthood, knowing that it's going to be attacked. And so we had whole religious orders that had it as their primary uh, charism, reparation. And that fell by the wayside. And so this document came out, and I remember the first time I saw it, and I said, yes. And you could hear crickets. <laughs> there, there, wasn't, there wasn't any response to it whatsoever. It went into the dustbin. In fact, the, the title of it was changed. Uh, the word reparation for priest was just changed to reparation. And I think it should remain the same, Repar reparation uh, for the sake of the priesthood. Because that's where the, 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 the greatest wounds have been inflicted. Do you mean like a solemn assembly? or is that, What do you mean? You know, when priests get together uh, in a church and just pray for the Holy Spirit to come upon them in a, in a spirit of reparation. No, I'm, I think what he was calling for is that, that women in particular that there's always been this special place in imitation of Mary's spiritual maternity of hold and her and in light of her relationship with Christ the high priest that they they in particular would be the strength of the priesthood in and through their prayers and so to foster this vocation that has existed from the beginning of the church and it's either among religious lay women, married women, you know, but to, to renew it. And I thought, yes, that's exactly what the church needs. This is what would bring about a, a, the new evangelization. And like I said, nothing. There are all the different programs that, you know, have been put out there, you know, fostering many different things, and they're, they can be good. <coughs> But this essential element, you, 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 it was ignored. It went in, as I said, it went into the dustbin, and except in a few, few, few spots. And hopefully that will grow over over time. But uh, there is a group of sisters down in Steubenville, the Sisters of Reparation, and. You know, they're still new in formation, but it's really the heart and soul of their, it, that's their charism, and I hope that they take hold of it and allow, allow that really to become their focus in a sharpened way and that they help foster and promote that in, in Catholic culture. Why is it the Well, I think that's part. That's part of the. That's part of the thinking and reality. You know, a lot of priests now are given responsibility for three parishes, and a lot of them are given that responsibility at a very young age. And so, whereas a priest would often be a parochial vicar for twenty-five years before becoming a pastor, and so would learn what is of importance and value over time and what to emphasize. You know, you've seen that diminish over time too. So sometimes after five years in the priesthood, they're made pastor of three parishes. And so they're going to be overwhelmed and at the end of their rope, you know, I've talked to enough of them to know that that's true. You know, that it's not that they're not working hard or that they wouldn't want to. It's just that they 
are often overwhelmed. But I think then there has been this sense that I have all these things that are pressing, and, but, and if I go in the confessional, nobody comes, and so it's not a, a great use of time. And it's only when you sort of break that line of thought and say, no, I'm not going to give myself over to that, that this has the value I'm going to go in there even if nobody comes for weeks, months on end until this begins to bear fruit. But often it's, it's thought to be the place where you can you know, sacrifice that, that it's not as important. And I think it's the general tenor of the church too. I think there's a, been a de-emphasis uh, on the struggle with sin and passions and the importance of seeking to grow in virtue. The emphasis has been on community, but in the sense of not our, our union in Christ through the sacrament and the life of virtue, but rather through our shared time together. And so celebrating the Eucharist has almost become more like a get-together. And the emphasis is placed more on the meal aspect than the, the sacrificial aspect of it. And so it's gradually over time, you know, the shift in the language shifts the spirituality. And if you shift that language so much, then there isn't going to be a sense that's developed to need to prepare yourself. What do I need to prepare myself for? Well, the priest, the pastor who's celebrating the funeral does not know of what faith there could be Protestants there, non-practicing Catholics. And he always announces, if you're not a practicing Catholic, please do not come forward to receive the body of Christ and have a blessing. Please respect our belief. I've heard Catholics say how wrong that was, that he should just give them communion and keep his mouth shut. Right. Yeah, because it's it's seen as an offense against hospitality, and so when the emphasis has shifted so much to it being a communal meal, then why would you not allow everyone to come up? And I don't think that's where catechesis is going to begin because there's not a discussion or a dialogue that's taking place there, and you know, I think we even live in a different time. Of Philip in some in some ways where people just don't care, like having it. I think this is why Francis is shifting the focus a little bit too, and how he's engaging people. You know, the sense of where you could dialogue, have this dialogue about the truth, a philosophical discussion. You know, people just don't care. You know, sometimes when you post things on the internet, they won't read it if it's a par more than a paragraph long. <laughs> so unless you can do it in a meme, they're not interested. And so you have to engage people personally. And I think this is what Philip Neri did too. And it was through his personal influence. And Newman saw that as well too. This radical kind of personalism where you engage people through living the faith out and then drawing them into it. Same is true here with adoration. You can't send out, what we found is that you can't send out emails to people or letters or put up flyers. There has to be that personal inv uh, invitation and uh, a willingness to share is the value and importance that it's had to you as an individual. That's what draw, draws people in, into it. I, I, 
why don't we move on here? We'll, uh, we'll open it up. Since Jim opened that can of worms, now we're really behind <laughs> schedule Could you repeat here. the name of that document from 2007 before you move on? It's Adoration, Reparation, and Spiritual Motherhood. Okay, where are we? I've my. I'm sorry. We must approach, right? Okay. We must approach this holy banquet with great desire, and always with some particular motive of devotion, not from custom or routine, according to the intention of Saint Philip, who, when his spiritual children asked permission to communicate, uh, I'm sorry, Father. Let's have a Latin. Right. So, thirsting, thirsting, come, come to the waters, and he wished that they should first acquire the thirst and then approach the fountain of eternal life. Uh, often within the groups here, you know, we come back to the discussion of desire, of being an essential aspect of the spiritual life and fostering that desire with, within our own hearts. Desire meaning sense of lack or completeness. We know our, our lack of life, our lack of completeness outside of our relationship with God. And so in regards to receiving Holy Communion, we want to foster that des desire on a deeper and deeper level that we begin to understand that we are only nourished to life through Christ. Our only hope of salvation is to be found in him as well as our hope in growth and virtue that we, this is where we have to foster the sense of our absolute dependence upon his grace. <coughs> and without that, again, we can communicate, we can receive out of custom, he says, or out of routine here. And so this is where I think you're right on one level, there would have to be a kind of mature spirit, who, who brought up the spiritual maturity that or even just this understanding of the importance or the value of desire in this spiritual life, where having to refrain, it, all, it already speaks of a kind of desire pre-existing, and that the penitent is trying to, or the confessor, I'm sorry, is trying to foster that in, in a deeper measure. Uh, but if the desire is lacking altogether, then obviously your starting point has to be somewhere else. You have to find a way to foster it altogether. And that's opening people's eyes to the beauty of, of the Eucharist. And I think, again, it's sort of like Paul, you know, beginning with the cross, you know, drawing people, this is what we preach, because this is what manifests the love of God in, in the sharpest, most direct fashion. This is what penetrates deep to people's, into people's heart, to the depth of their religiosity. And so we have to begin there in our, our proclamation of the, of the gospel. And that is what fosters this desire and love for God. But again, simply I think to hold out the notion or even the beauty of the Eucharist, it's hard I think for many to wrap their minds around that. Especially if it's episodic you know, connection with the spiritual life is only, say if it is reduced, does become reduced to Sunday. And throughout the week, it's, you know, things carried on as usual, where there's no mindfulness of God. Like in the past, the, the focus of even the social life was the parish. 
And there were regular devotions throughout the week, vespers, you know, the rosary would be said in common, 40 hours devotion. Uh, what's that? Feast days. Feast days, right. The, all of these were much bigger things. I, I saw some old photos from Forbes Field here, where, where it was all um, a men's Eucharistic conference. Forbes Field, there were like 100,000 men there engaged in adoration. And you think, I can't even imagine something like that today as well as a multitude of servers you know, dressed in cassock and surplus and bishops from all over the place you know, engaged in this. It's ex so the, the mindset, the, the Catholic culture was so different at that point that I think it also helped foster this appreciation of, of the Eucharist. All the devotions that people entered into, there might not have been a per perfect understanding of what all those were about, but they were engaged in the life of the church in such a way that it could be deeply formative. I don't think we want to idealize the 1950s, but the way that my mom talks about the church back in the 1950s is much different than the way that she talks about the life of the church now. Often now it's with horror, uh, the things that she's seen in church, <laughs> rather than things that are beautiful, unfortunately. Yes? Yeah, I mean, went through it. Uh, I went through five years of Catholic education. And I can't really remember the real presence being stressed at all. You know, I mean, communion uh, was just another part of the Mass, but the whole thing, what, what was stressed was the form. That you should be reverent. You should, you know, yeah. Well, it's 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 both things. You know, it's not going to be intellectual alone. As if we could solve all the problems by having programs, educational programs. Part of it has to be liturgical as well. The way that we pray is formative. You know, it it fosters these sensibilities. And so if you're going to a parish where the liturgy is poorly done, no emphasis is done, the preaching is poor, there's no reverence, you know, that, that's going to communicate something. And whereas if you are celebrating the, the liturgy with a kind of attention you know, to detail, again, not a kind of scrupulosity or a fastidiousness, but rather attention to the beauty of it, or at least to reverence, then that's going to be deeply, deeply formative. And so I think it has to be on multiple levels that this renewal takes place. But I'm with Philip. I think it's the confessional is, is a good step one. So let's move on. I'll wait. Everybody's taking in a breath. Although no preparation for communion can ever be called sufficient, we must nevertheless take care never to approach this holy bread negligently or through habit, but use all possible preparation. Some penitents of the Holy Master went to the saint on Saturday nights and on the vigil of festivals, either to the Church of the Dominicans or that of the Capuchins, where they assisted in choir with the friars at Matins, spending the whole night, as the sacred legend says, in preparation for Holy Communion on the morrow. And so, you know, fostering this sense of preparation that, that on the night before they would enter into greater prayer, that they would go where there would be sung, sung vespers, 
They would even perhaps even spend the whole night in prayer, keep, keep vigils as a way of preparing. All, all these things are, are beautiful, but I think have been lost in the, the, the church now. Like Saturday night, what was Elton John's thing? The night for fighting or whatever? Or is that Friday night? <laughs> I'm sorry. But not, well, not that we want to bring... Is it Saturday night? Okay, yeah, I'm revealing my age there. Actually, that's my sister's age, not my age. But, uh, but Saturday night is a night of recreation. And nobody thinks about preparing yourself for the exquisite banquet that's to take place the next day that you would seek to prepare your mind heart, mind and heart to be able to receive well. So the idea would not to be to go out clubbing or partying, partying on a Saturday night, or even, I think, more innocent uh, forms of entertainment because they can be dissipating. You know, to go to a ball game or to watch movies and things like that. We all, we all do it, but often not with uh, uh, a sense that is this really working to prepare me for the great mystery that I'm going to enter into the next morning? Or am I simply dissipating myself on a spiritual and emotional level? Am I heightening my sensitivity by that night, spending it quietly doing spiritual reading or engaging in devotion, adoration, in such a way that the next day that I am prepared to receive well? Again, if you start telling people that, you know, okay, no more television or no more movies on Saturday night. But uh, people went to confession traditionally in the past on Saturday night as a way to prepare, prepare themselves to receive. And I've heard so many people look back at that and speak ill of it, you know, you know as if there was something wrong about it or that there was something overly scrupulous about it. Well, no doubt there were scrupulous people back in the 50s, as there are now, and, but still the right practice. You don't get rid of it. I think we, you try to refine the practice and the understanding of it in order that it would bear more fruit. And so we don't want to throw, as it were, the baby out with the bathwater. I think we want to recapture some of these sensibilities for our own day in, in order that they might bear fruit for us. So you prepare during the day on Saturday and go to Mass Saturday afternoon at like four. Can you still go to see a movie Saturday night? <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent illustration of my point. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jim. Well, I think that's another thing, too. You know, I don't typically do this, or I haven't done it for years, because the younger guys do it now in the community, but the grocery shopping. But uh, I also hear from my folks that it's sort of a sad kind of thing that grocery shopping now is done on Sundays. And that might seem like a small thing, but it's indicative of changing sensibilities there, that Sunday is now people's free day to do the work that they weren't able to get done during the, the week. And that Saturday they want to use for the more fun or enjoyable things. And so Sunday is used to do the yard work and the grocery shopping. And so the Sabbath as a whole, I think, has been diminished on some, some level. So not just the preparation to receive well, but I think, again, what we do with the grace that we receive 
you know, how do we how do we embrace that? You know, after receiving Holy Communion, do we spend the day quietly in prayer or doing spiritual reading or with our family? Or is it, again, do we spend it being dissipated? Do we receive Holy Communion and then rush home and flick on the television in order to watch the Sunday football games and pass the day that way? I mean, it's a valid question. You know, how, how, what are we doing with the grace that, that we receive? I think of that, um, I think it's you who say it, but I don't remember who it was, about like the angels are standing around the altar adoring Christ in the Eucharist, and then when like these like little raggedy human beings go and receive from the angels, follow the human beings like adoring Christ in the tabernacle of, of humans. And I just imagine like, imagine if you had some visualization of that. <laughs> and you're like, I'm walking around with like angels bowing around me. And like, I'm gonna go turn on a football game. I mean, it's it's just interesting. I mean, if you just found some way of, of connecting to like the spiritual reality of what's going on, that even if you're not attending to Christ present in you at all, there's like myriads of angels around you, like attending to Him with you, and right. it's just like yeah, a sense of the communion you know, of saints, and then also all, yeah. all all of heaven being present for that mystery and. Again, you know, I don't think we want to be harsh about all this, and we don't. I, I don't think we want to turn this into just sort of like this. Our breathing forth our frustrations. I think, you know, it's something that saddens the heart, but it is something that we are going to have to move in a direction to try to foster something fuller. And even here at the oratorio, it's very small. You know, we have it's the chapel seats eighty. And we squeeze like 120 in there sometimes, but and but it's taken a long time, and it's because there's a kind of stability here. Not even because we've done anything ourselves, but there's a stability that allows then to foster a kind of reverence in the chapel, and then the adoration too fosters a greater sense of reverence for the Eucharist that then feeds back into the celebration of the Eucharist. And you see over time more and more people staying and offering thanks after having received communion. Like a lot of the masses now, we don't go out to shake hands because nobody comes out. You're, you're standing there. But that's a good thing because they're making their little you know, thank offering to God for what they've just received. Uh, but it, it's the ability to foster that over a long period of time and if, if, again it has to be the priest to in, encourage it and sometimes it's a hard thing you know when the chapel breaks out into this big conversation after mass you know there has to be a willingness to say okay you know adoration is taking place now or if you want to go out for conversation you know come down here for coffee and donuts or out in the hall but not in in, in the chapel chapels like prayer <laughs> <laughs> Jim, I know there's something jumping out of your mouth. I, I could see it. No? <laughs> yes. I was just thinking, you know, if communion rightly deserves this much preparation, like how can we really, for those of us that, you know, are in the world of responsibilities, then daily communion would be out of the question, right? No. Because I, I think those living in the world are called to the same kind of holiness of life. That's 
you know, the, the fruit of your baptism, that you have been united to Christ and called to live that life in all of its fullness. It might be within the world or family life, but in that context, you're called to seek the same holiness and to grow in virtue and to set aside the passions. And so, you know, it might, you not, might not live in a religious community, but you're called to have a deep and rich daily prayer life, you know, to simplify things in such a way that that has the priority in your family and to see that there is a definite call to holiness there. That's our common vocation as Christians. Our common call, that's our common vocation is to holiness. And so we don't want to use living in the world as an out to that. It has become more complicated. And I think... I guess what I mean is like if you have the opportunity to go to Mass daily and receive communion and if we're called to this kind of, I mean, are we called, like, when the preparation, like, that you're talking about, like, on Saturday for the Sunday reception, mm-hmm. would that be expected every day, I mean, to do spiritual well, reading? a kind of mindfulness and recollection of what we are exposing ourselves to and what is formative. You know, I think television has become the tabernacle, and the media has become that which forms us morally and spiritually. And nobody would question somebody, even though this takes place in millions of households every day, people turning on the television and sitting in front of it for two hours. But the moment that you would suggest spending an hour a day before the Blessed Sacrament, all of a sudden you're nuts. (laughs) You're a religious fanatic, or that you would do spiritual do spiritual reading. I think it is would be countercultural, but Christians are called to be countercultural, and to live a life that is distinctive, a reflection of their love for Christ. And so, how they spend their time would be one element of that. The kind of entertainment that they engage in would be one element of that. And. So it might be very difficult. I've heard it said recently that you know, those who would live a life of purity, of chastity, will be the new martyrs of our age. Because to live that in our day, with the media and the culture being what it is, would require incredible sacrifice, incredible discipline in the spiritual life. Fasting, deep prayer, avoidance of near occasions of sin, a willingness to avoid the things that would be mal- would malform you, deform you, that to do that would require great sacrifice in our day. And I, I think they're right. You know, think of a young person coming to college in our day, all the stuff that they encounter. And so how do, how do you pursue a life of purity, ch- chastity, uh, at, on a secular campus when they have sex week, you know, at the beginning of the school year. So, let's move on. On that note, let's move on. <laughs> the Holy Master says that whoever goes to Holy Communion should follow the spirit which he had in prayer and not seek for new meditations. He should also prepare for more temptations than usual for the Lord will not suffer him to remain idle. In the act of receiving the Most Holy Sacrament, let him imitate the Holy Master, 
who when about to communicate said with all affection, O Lord, I protest that I am good for nothing but to do evil. And when receiving the Holy Viaticum, he repeated, Domine non sum dignus, with extreme devotion, saying, O my Lord, I am not worthy, neither was I ever worthy. I have never done any good. The Holy Master exhorts us to ask in communion a remedy for that vice which we are most inclined, to which we are most inclined. Let's just pause there for a second. That, you know, we would be prepared for greater temptations upon receiving Holy Communion. And I'm sure this has been the experience of most everyone here, that, you know, you're receiving something precious, a great grace from God, and the desire would be to pull you away from that as quickly as possible, to be negligent in your spiritual life precisely that you would fall into some particular sin. And so when we receive Holy Communion, it's as important after receiving Communion what we do as our preparation. So we would want to engage in greater devotion, have even greater vigilance, knowing that we are going to be attacked at that moment because it becomes this moment for us where we can grow in great virtue because we're being strengthened by the grace of God himself. And so we should expect to be tempted more fully, so that we become more watchful, more vigilant, and that we deepen our prayer, not slack off. And again, that's the temptation. Go to Mass, receive communion, and then become oblivious, you know, on a spiritual level when we should be even more vigilant. At a time often we're exposing ourselves to the very things that would pull us away. Yes? Father, what does he mean when he says, not seek for new meditation? That, you know, sometimes we might receive what we think is an inspiration uh, and so be pulled in another direction you know that is uh, a bigger shift from what where God has been leading us in the spiritual life so say our focus has been in a particular place and our meditation on a particular subject of say of the passion has been bearing great fruit for us and preparing us to receive it not to make a sudden or impulsive shift in what you're doing in regards to your spiritual disciplines or what you're meditating upon. Because that shift can create uh, an instability internally for you, on, both on an emotional and spiritual level. And so you will want to be watchful even to that, that point in regards to the devotions that you're engaging in. Not that there would necessarily be anything sinful about those different meditations, it's just that it can create a vulnerability, because all of a sudden we can get swept up in a kind of fervor that might lead us off in a certain direction where we aren't being attentive to what we, God had been leading us to be more attentive to. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to say that I thought that the, uh, the line that asking communion a remedy for that vice to which we were most inclined, I just thought that was really kind of beautiful. So, you know, you think about uh, people going to holy places or going to venerate relics of saints and they bring all these petitions, they ask for healing and for all of these things and sometimes it's physical and sometimes it's spiritual. It's like, this isn't a relic of a saint, it's the body of God. Like, why wouldn't you like prepare a special intention? Why wouldn't you be seeking healing in an extraordinary way in that moment? It's just really right. Yeah. Again, that's, it reveals a greater consciousness, I think, of what's going on in the spiritual life, that you would be seeking to uh, make use of the grace received 
act in the in the sin that you're struggling with the most and so that in our preparation we would also be re reflecting upon our spiritual life and what we're struggling with those vices that you know are most difficult for us asking god that he would you know apply this grace to that particular struggle and again we can often go up with a sense that we're receiving something important or a sense that we're receiving the Lord, but again, not with a clarity about our own spiritual battle and the things that afflict us and where we need healing. This is the medicine that we are being given, a kind of spiritual medicine, and so we would want it applied where it's most needed. <coughs> okay. After Holy Communion, he exhorts us to preserve a devout remembrance of the great favor which we have received in being made partakers of the heavenly food and show ourselves reverently grateful to the divine goodness. So much did the Holy Father insist on this that when his spiritual children communicated, he made them perform some additional act of devotion for some days after that they might derive fruit from the sacrament such as recite the, uh, the Pater and Ave with extended arms, or some little chaplet of these prayers which he himself taught, of which we shall speak in a lesson on devotion, or some similar things. On a communion day, we must try to perform some extra work of piety, since St. Philip, having communicated his spiritual children, sent them to different hospitals to visit and serve the sick, respecting which visits and service instruction will be given in another lesson of this book. And so a sense of gratitude fostering after each time that we would receive. This is why the idea of remaining in the chapel and offering thanks is a, isn't just a good practice that we should be offering God thanks for the extraordinary gift if we have a true sense of what it is that we are receiving. But then again, as we've, we've mentioned here, to, to make use of that grace in order to, to give that love. It's, we don't receive only for ourselves. We receive that love in order that we might bring it and give it to others. So to be particularly attentive to those who are suffering uh, or the most vulnerable. And for Philip, that was those who were sick who needed daily care. Yes? So going back a moment to the idea of daily community, and I think the mentality that at least I've been most familiar with is that, that that is in and of itself a good thing. It should be done, it should be pursued, and so on and so on. It almost sounds like, it, you know, at St. Philip's School, that that would be a practice that wouldn't be characteristic necessarily of a beginner or even of an you know, intermediate, but, but of someone you know, who had achieved a certain high degree of spirituality consistently and stably and was living in that uh, intensity, you know, right. habitually. So, so if you could just kind of speak to that a bit. I think that's um, what I was trying to I think that's, thank you for asking that question. I think that's what I was trying to well, okay. I think at least in our day, we would we would seek to foster a greater mindfulness of what is going on in this spiritual life. That we would be able to develop a, a great the greater desire for the Holy Eucharist, but also the sense of of preparedness. 
And so we have all the means that are available for us to do that, frequent confession. We have access now to spiritual, you know, the writings of spiritual masters that we never had in the past. You know, Eucharistic adoration, 24 hours a day. So we do have the means here available to us to, to do what Philip did, maybe not in the same way because of the realities that we face in our own time, but to take hold of what, you know, the gifts that God has given to us and allow them to bear the greatest fruit. You know, there are confessions twice a day here on Sundays. You know, the, as I said, the perpetual adoration, Bible studies, books on the spiritual life, the, you know, Cassian I mentioned, and all the things that Philip read. So we could foster the life that Philip led here. There's nothing preventing us from doing that. But, but I guess my question is, that, that is that all of the things you just mentioned, those are means to an end? And if the, if, if for the purposes of my question, the end being um, adequate preparedness for frequent and even daily reception of the Eucharist, but it's not the other way around. And this is sort of the, the, the school that I was kind of brought up in, which is that it was precisely daily reception of the Eucharist that would somehow lead those deep right. Yeah, and I think this this does challenge that. It's saying that we've we we have things backwards, and that we we really want to embrace the the wisdom of the church and the, the tradition, the spiritual tradition in that regard. We've become disconnected from the spiritual tradition of our own faith, which tells us that we would want to prepare ourselves to receive Holy Communion, and. So, you know, after hearing something like this, what, the one that we're responsible for is ourself. And so the way that we prepare ourselves to re receive Holy Communion has to begin there. You know, in terms of bringing about that change in the, the church, I don't think we can look any further than that at the moment, than our own personal conversion of seeking to live out the faith life well. In the, in the model of St. Philip Neri, you know, to prepare ourselves to receive well and then to uh, seek to make use of that grace through loving others. I think, uh, and I love to hear the stories of um, people that convert to Catholicism and how often, in fact, it was discussed the other night, um, how often they will come to Catholic masses for years um, and really, truly want to receive, but, but they, you know, they just haven't made it to, in their heart yet to convert. And then they do sometimes five or ten years later. And that first communion and every communion after that mm -hmm. seems to me the way it should be for all Catholics. Right. But they, you know, they have this special gift because they, they really did take their time and understand what they were. They're saying yes to. Right. To live it from moment to moment, day to day, to receive Holy Communion as if it is your first and last, and to prepare yourself, you know, in, in the manner as if that were, were true. And the, the, I think that's where the deeper appreciation begins 
to grow. But again, I think it is with personal conversion. You know, and then the, I think that is what bears witness, the, the fruit of that in people's lives, the kind of person that it makes them in, in, in regards to how they engage in their day-to-day -day work, their family life, and their just daily relationships with people that they meet. And that's what it was for Philip, you know, this gentle and joyful soul that brought about the conversion of Rome, person by person. Any final comments? Yes. Philip didn't have to compete, though, with the media and television. Yeah, he had other things to compete with, yeah. though, in his own day. So there were, yeah, there were, there were. Blessed Newman, he was, he was preaching about St. Paul, and he, he says, it's, he, he was looking at St. Paul's time and saying, it's, it's hard to, you know, he's, he basically said, um, it's hard to imagine a time that, you know, we would be less conducive to, you know, to, to the principles of the gospel than, than, you know, than, you know, than the time that St. Paul lived in. Today, so I appreciate your patience. Was there okay? I was just going to say that for those of us who um, are parents or godparents or in some way are responsible for young children, um, I think one thing that can really help is um, making the sacrament of confession available to them in a very low pressure way so that they um, they don't feel pressure to receive on more of them. Sorry, I feel so bad. You're, you're children. such a weeper. <laughs> children are just um, a lot of the times very sensitive to the state of their soul. Children. <laughs> I think sometimes, well, I was a child. Once. I know. <laughs> um, I think you can become really desensitized if um, you feel a lot of pressure to receive when you're not. Yeah, sometimes it can feel very uncomfortable, and I think that's where the frequency. The frequency of confession is what makes it into something quite joyful. That the more you enter into it, the more you begin to encounter Christ. And there's a freedom that comes to a person in engaging it. Not You lose the fear and the anxiety about it and begin to see that it's uh, an encounter with Christ, as receiving Holy Communion is. And so you're right. I mean, priests have to be very gentle, you know, not not harsh, you know, and how could you be? You know, it's a sinner serving a sinner, and there should be a kind of gentleness there within the, within the confessional, you know, never kind of a harsh judgment. Strict from the pulpit. <laughs> 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 Father, 
you would know better than I would. Has Pope Francis been communicating much about confession? I, I think so, both okay. both in word and an example, okay. you know, in, in many ways and on many occasions. So I think that's one of the ways that he's trying to, you know, draw people back to it and encourage them to come back to it. First right. hope to go to confession on tape. Because <laughs> 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 right? okay. during that um, general penance service at the Vatican, like all the priests went to their confessionals and the Pope was moving to his confessional and then he like runs away from his master ceremonies and goes and goes to confession. like. Like and, and they're the Vatican ones, so you can like see the priest, and then like the two sides, and he just like knelt right in front of the priest and went to confession. Then he went to his own confession, oh, and everyone's like, "You can uh, hear his confession on Well, no, that's it's a very yeah. it's a very powerful point. You know, it's not that he's the first pope that has done that; the other ones did as well. But to see a pope or a priest going to confession regularly is an important thing, as is important as seeing a father or mother on their knees praying. That's the thing that leaves the indelible memory on a child's mind. You know, a prayerful parent or a parent that's going to confession regularly or going to adoration. And so seeing priests go, you know, free weekly or you know, twice weekly or even more often, given the fact that they're celebrating the Mass is an important thing to see. I think it would blow most Catholics' minds if they went into a confessional and as part of their penance they were told, refrain from receiving Holy Communion mm -hmm. for the next week, for the next two weeks, for the next month, or whatever it would be. That seems to me, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not disagreeing that mm -hmm. it's not an efficacious practice, but I just think it's, it's, it's a pretty unheard of. Well, it, it is unheard of because, you know, that applying that level of discipline to a person isn't necessarily going to be helpful at this point. You know, I think it's something that has to be built up over time. That, you know, what Philip, and this was said in the first lesson last time, that, you know, that sometimes it's the confessor who becomes, the confessee who becomes the priest and is directing the counsel to be given and determining what that is or what the penance is rather than the priest. And, you know, Philip was pretty strict on not letting off on disciplines because they were so important for, for people's spiritual lives. And so even when there was a kind of resistance to, you know, have them do it, you know, not to crumple trying to be the, the nice guy but being more attentive to the state of people's souls, that, that was, is what he valued. But I don't, again, I don't think we can indiscriminately apply a kind of penance where there would be a, a lack of understanding there. If, if priests simply started saying, refrain from receiving Holy Communion, without there being any sense of why that would be, or even fostering the other things and having those in place first, like the availability of confession and other devotions, I think it would do more harm than good at this point. And he only did it to his like, direct beats, right? Right. Like, it, say, we'll take as an example psychotherapy, or, you know, we build up our defenses, you know, throughout the course of our life, our psychological defenses. They're in place for a reason, and they help us to function. And some defenses are healthier than others. 
and some co uh, come at great cost to an individual. And so a therapist would work with the person over time and really to the point where they would be able to identify it themselves and understand it. They, you know, they wouldn't make these quick or radical uh, kinds of uh, interpretations or take a sledgehammer to somebody's defense mechanisms because you would be harming them. What, what, what good would that do other than make them crumple and, and anxiety and incapable of functioning? And so the same could be true in the spiritual life. If you know, a priest started you know, taking a sledgehammer to people's piety, you know, regardless of where it is across the spectrum, and, you know, and took a sledgehammer to it, all that he would be doing would be harm. And we don't see that in Philip Neri. I think if we talk about the school of Philip Neri, it was gentleness, that he engaged people where they were, where other priests could be very harsh. If somebody was wearing these fancy collars or high heels, you know, the most that he would be say to them was, well, be careful you don't fall off of those, you know, or <laughs> something like that. You know, it's not that he would be harsh with them, even though they might be engaging, that, those weren't very good examples, but engaging in behaviors that weren't best for their spiritual life. But, but in the church of his day, this wouldn't have been considered so unusual because it wasn't a typical or, or a, right. a promoted practice for the lay to go to right. mass every day. For That's right. That's right. Um, so and now it is now it is, and so if, if you got out there as a priest and started, as I said, swinging the sledgehammer, that's not going to be formative, and it wouldn't necessarily be the loving thing to do either. Okay, I thought a good way to end tonight would be to seek the intercession of Philip Neri, and uh, and there's a painting of him over on the wall here on the left, and. It's the prayer of Bar the Baronius wrote, and so why don't we stand before we sing our final hymn and recite that together? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Look down from heaven, Holy Father, from the loftiness of that mountain to the lowliness of this valley, from that harbor of quietness and tranquility to this calamitous sea, and now that the darkness of this world hinders no more those renewed eyes of thine. From looking clearly into all things, look down and visit, O most diligent keeper, this vineyard which thy right hand planted with so much labor, anxiety, and peril. To thee then we fly, from thee we seek for aid. To thee we give our whole selves unreservedly. Thee we adopt as our patron and defender, Undertake the cause of our salvation. Protect thy clients. To thee we appeal as our leader. Roll thine army, fighting against the assaults of the devil. To thee, kindest of pilots, we give up the rudder of our lives. Steer this little ship of thine, and placed as thou art on high, keep us off all the rocks of evil desires. That with thee for our pilot and guide, we may safely come to the court of eternal bliss. Amen. The Lord be with you. And the Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Philip, pray for us. Our closing hymn is, O God, Beyond All Praising. O God,
beyond all praising, we worship you today. And sing the love amazing that songs cannot repay. For we can only wonder at every gift you send. without end. We lift our hearts before you and wait upon your word. We honor and adore you, our great and mighty Also dessert on the side table. Yes. <laughs>